listening to Trojan War, the podcast, history's most awesome epic. This is episode number two in the series. Today's episode is titled, The Torch. So welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Trojan War, the podcast. This is episode number two in the series. Today's episode is titled, The Torch. Now, right before we get on to the fun of telling the story, a few little pieces of business to clear up. If you are coming to this episode directly from episode number one of Trojan War, the podcast, an episode titled The Apple of Discord, then, well, welcome back, and you're in for an awful lot more fun as our epic story continues. On the other hand, if you have somehow, well, stumbled across this particular podcast episode with no context or or, or prior experience with Trojan War, the podcast, then, well, welcome aboard, and... Let me just tell you what we're doing. I'm intending to set out to tell the entire Trojan War story epic, a a massive story arc, if you will, over a successive series of podcasts. It will take us some time. It will be an awful lot of fun. And what you have stepped into really is episode two in the continuing series. Now, you're more than welcome to stick around. It's a self-contained episode. You'll have a great deal of fun. You'll enjoy yourself. You'll be entertained and informed. But I really would suggest that you seriously consider actually, well, hitting the pause button in a moment, uh, running over to my website, trojanwarpodcast.com, and listening to episode number one in the series first. Uh, It is a serialized story that I'm telling, and if you get in right at the beginning, well, then you'll have the full benefit of all the plot, the backstory, and the characters as you move along. But the choice is yours. So, on with the fun of telling the story. A quick recap of the previous episode. If you'll remember in the Apple of Discord episode, well, Discord had entered Mount Olympus, the home of the Olympian gods, via a golden apple, a golden apple with an inscription on it. And the apple had said, for the fairest or for the most beautiful. And the minute that that apple had arrived in the throne room at Mount Olympus, well, three Olympian deities, the three most powerful goddesses in all of creation, had well assumed that that apple was rightly intended for none other than herself. And, and and the deities in question were Hera, queen of the gods, wife of Zeus, and the most powerful deity sitting in Mount Olympus, short of Zeus himself. Uh, next to Hera, the next deity who wanted the apple was Athena, the goddess of wisdom and of war, Zeus's daughter. And the third goddess who believed the apple belonged to her was Aphrodite, goddess of lust, sexual pleasure, and all good things south of the waste. Well, the three goddesses had vied for this apple and demanded that Zeus choose which of the three goddesses was the most beautiful. And Zeus, in a very quick flash of self-preserving insight, had realized that, well, judging a contest like this put him into a no-win situation. Uh, Whatever he judged or decided, well, there would be one very, very happy goddess and two very, very unhappy and hence vindictive and angry goddesses. So Zeus had decided to well, foist the problem of judging the beauty contest off on somebody else. And in the time-honored tradition, which shows up in, 
well, in, in myth and story and cultures across the planet, when, when the heat gets too hot in the kitchen of the gods, well, often the gods turn around and foist their problems onto us poor human beings down here on earth. And so Zeus had turned around and announced that he would find a human judge for the beauty contest between the deities. And hence, ladies and gentlemen, discord, which arrived in the heavens, uh, was going to make its way down to earth. And that was what was going to start off our Trojan War epic story. Now, it is going to take Zeus, king of the gods, some time to find an appropriate judge for this beauty contest. And that's actually useful for us because it gives me, as your storyteller, an opportunity to, well, uh, develop some of the other threads in the tapestry which we are weaving into this glorious epic story. So today, I'd like to take you to a completely different plot, situation, and set of characters for another one of the threads which will soon all come together into this wonderful, glorious Trojan War tapestry. I need to take you to Bronze Age Troy, and I need to take you back to about 1300 BCE. Now, the date I can't be entirely certain of. One of the problems with telling ancient epic stories is that this story takes place in a time period before the people involved in the story had developed a written language. And and then the other problem, of course, is that when you get into stories which are blends of, well, historical fact and, and myth, it's very difficult to use contemporary carbon dating techniques. Whatever the case, sometime around 1300 BCE, there was a city called Troy. And we know historically that Troy existed. You can actually go visit the ruins or the remains of Troy today if you want. And, and where Troy is hasn't really moved too much. It's, it's located on the end of the Mediterranean Sea at the western end of the Dardanelles. And the Dardanelles are the strait that connects, well, the Mediterranean Sea to the Black Sea. In, in short, it's a very narrow little bit of water that links well Asia with Europe. Well, at the time that our story opens, the city of Troy was governed by a king. His name was Laomedon. And Laomedon was, well, he had actually inherited the city from his father. But the city that Laomedon had inherited had been a relatively modest affair, perched there as it was beside the Dardanelles Strait. And, and it didn't take Laomedon long, once he came to power, to recognize that his city was actually sitting on a potential gold mine. Um, and so Laomedon, unlike his father, who had been content to lead a quiet life, well, Laomedon had aspirations of greatness. So Laomedon set out to make Troy the most powerful city in the entire Mediterranean world. Now, there are a couple of ways that he could have done this, and the, the time-honored ways of turning your small city into a, into a greater or powerful city were, well, number one, conquest. And, and uh, Laomedon looked at his options there, but Troy didn't have a particularly large or effective army, and Troy had no navy at all. So Laomedon realized conquest wasn't the way to go. And the other way to go, of course, and in any city that wants to become powerful is, well, if you're sitting on a valuable supply of natural resources, which can be easily exploited and, and, and traded, but Troy had none. So Laobodon recognized that the one thing that Troy did have, which gave it a remarkable potential for untold wealth, was its location. I, I told you, Troy sat on the western extreme end of the Straits of the Dardanelles, and Laomedon, as he looked out the window of his palace every morning, recognized that, well, essentially the Dardanelles Straits was a, was a highway. It was the superhighway for shipping of all trade and all goods between, well, the world of Asia and the world of the Mediterranean. And, and so Laomedon recognized that he had an incredible possibility to turn Troy into a city which was essentially a center of business, investment, banking, economic opportunity, 
Troy, in short, could become the middleman to every financial transaction which transpired in the entire Bronze Age world. Now, speaking of middlemen and transactions, the, the commodity which was flowing by boats back and forth freely across the Dardanelles Straits back in 1300 BCE or so was, well, I guess very appropriately given that this was the Bronze Age, nothing other than bronze itself. And, and, and what bronze was really, folks, was bronze was the, the most cherished super metal commodity, if you will, of the Bronze Age world. It, it, it's an amalgamation, it's an alloy of, of copper and tin. And bronze was an absolutely imperative, imperative metal for, well, both war and peace throughout the Mediterranean basin. All of the weapons and all of the armor of every army in the entire Mediterranean world was in those days composed of bronze. And in times of peace, of course, bronze was responsible for every one of a farmer's most important implements, particularly plows. So there was an insatiable demand for bronze inside of the Western Mediterranean world. And the problem was, of course, that the copper and the tin, the the two minerals which in alloy combine to create bronze, well, copper and tin were mined north of the Black Sea, way up in the Caucasus. And that meant that copper and tin was melted down after it had been mined, put onto boats and shipped down through the Dardanelles Straits and out into Western Europe. Well, Laomedon very quickly recognized that if he established a center of commerce and if he set up a, a, a standardized system for weighing and measuring those bronze ingots, and then if he included taxes and tariffs and service fees and shipping fees and hotel fees and, and transit fees and, and regulation fees along the way, well then for every shipment of copper or bronze ingots that or, or tin ingots that headed down the Dardanelles, or for any money that's headed back to Asia Minor in the opposite direction, well, Troy would take a cut, and Troy could become incredibly, incredibly, incredibly wealthy in the process. So in short, Laomedon, in the course of his lifetime, turned Troy into a center for international banking and commerce, and Troy grew richer and richer and more and more powerful during the time of his tenure as king. Now, Laomedon himself, the ruler of Troy, was despised throughout both Asia and the Western Mediterranean on a deep and personal level. Uh, people referred to him as a money-grubbing, shameless, opportunistic crook. Uh, Laomedon preferred to think of himself as a highly successful venture capitalist. But, uh, but the fact was that most of the Mediterranean was beholden financially in one way or another to Laomedon, and Troy did exceedingly well. Well, one day after Laomedon had essentially transformed Troy into this massive, wealthy, powerful city on the edge of the Mediterranean, um, a man arrived at the gates of Troy and, and sought audience with King Laomedon. Uh, the man was a humble enough looking man. He certainly wasn't royalty or anything like that, but there was something inside of his eyes and, and, and his comportment and the way he carried himself, which, well, the guards immediately bowed to him, acquiesced, and granted him an audience with the king. So, so the man who only referred to himself as the builder arrived in the throne room of King Laomedon and, and sat down and, and had a conversation with Laomedon. And the gist of the conversation was like this. Uh, the, the builder pointed out to King Laomedon that Troy was doing exceedingly well and Laomedon was much to be congratulated, but that Troy was desperately in need of one new particular asset. And what Troy needed were walls. Walls to protect the wealth of the city and walls, more importantly, to discourage other nations and other superpowers that were developing throughout the Mediterranean who had become jealous of Troy and were looking towards Troy's exceeding and vast wealth and wondering if, 
well, the best thing to do might just be to invade Troy and take it over. And, and the builder had turned around to Laomedon and said, listen, your, your city's wealthy, it's fine, you're at peace, you don't have any natural enemies, but you need to recognize, Laomedon, that in your position as such a wealthy state, well, the day will come when some foreign power will decide that the easiest thing to do is just take over your city. And well, you really have a small army and almost no defenses at all. So the builder proposed to Laomedon that the builder would set out to build Troy, an absolutely glorious set of walls. And and the builder had actually brought along detailed architectural plans. So he laid them out. He showed the plans to Laomedon. And what the builder proposed was actually the most stunning walls that any city in the world had ever seen. These walls were going to be so large in scale that they would not only circle the royal palace, but they would circle the entire burgeoning city of Troy. All 150,000 people would be able to live safely inside of those walls. And in the event of some sort of a siege or a war, an attack in the city, the builder pointed out, well, these walls are too high and too wide to ever be breached. The walls that I'm proposing building you, Laomedon, will, I promise you, never, ever, ever be destroyed by an enemy force. So are you interested in hiring me to take on the task of building the walls? Well, Laomedon had been deeply impressed. He turned to the builder and he, he inquired about two things. He said, first of all, what's it going to cost me? Always Laomedon's main concern. You don't get to be a, a, a wealthy banker by being generous with your cash. And, and then he turned around and said, and how long will the project take? It sounds like a big job. Well, the builder had turned around and when it came to price, he had raised a number and cited a number which had, had stunned even poor Laomedon. It was going to cost for these walls, well, half of Troy's combined wealth. And the builder tried to assure Laomedon that this was an as a long-term investment, a very good deal, but the number was staggering. Then the builder turned around and said, and I can have the entire walls done to completion, complete with three massive glorious gates onto those walls. I can do the entire thing in precisely one calendar year. Well, Laomedon uh, thought that sounds like a reasonable deal in spite of the fee. So Laomedon and the builder had shaken hands on the deal and the builder had got to work on constructing the walls of Troy. Now, Laomedon didn't pay an awful lot of attention to the project. Laomedon was not really interested in architecture. He was interested in finance and commerce and, and business. But, but it's strange that every once in a while when Laomedon would look up from his counting house and, and take a look at the walls being assembled out there on the Trojan Plain, the thing that was remarkable is that there'd be no wall one day and the very next day an entire new section seemed to have been raised and the builder didn't seem to even have that large of a work crew. But Laomedon, who had never really understood architecture and therefore didn't realize that walls on the scale of Troy's were not usually the work of a year, but rather the work of a century. Well, Laomedon just assumed that the builder was particularly adept at his task and Laomedon thought nothing else about it. And so the year passed and one year later, the builder arrived back inside of Laomedon's royal quarters. He turned to Laomedon and he announced, uh, your walls, my king, are done and, and the walls are beautiful. Would you like to come out and inspect them? I'm very, very proud of my handiwork. And Laomedon, who was busy negotiating uh, an increase in tariffs on the price of copper with some angry Greek traders, had turned around and said, I'm rather busy at the moment, but just give me your word that the walls are good. And the builder had turned around and once again said, I promise you, my king, that the walls of Troy will never, ever be destroyed by an enemy force. These are good walls, the best, trust me on it. And, and then the builder had handed over his bill, the agreed upon fee for services that he and Laomedon had agreed upon a year earlier. 
And at that point, ladies and gentlemen, Leomedon had turned around and ripped off the builder. He had smiled. He had immediately turned over all of the gold ingots which he had promised the builder as part of the contract. But with one hand, as he turned over the gold ingots, with the other hand, he presented the builder with an invoice for services rendered. And, and there were tariffs, there were taxes, there were accommodation fees, shipping fees, building inspecting fees. The list went on and on and on and on and on. When it was all added up, well, when the builder looked at it, he recognized that Leomedon had given him one sum of cash and that the bill which Leomedon had also given him was actually higher than the sum of cash he was being paid. Well, the builder had turned around with steely blank eyes and asked Leomedon if he was entirely sure that this is how he wanted to proceed with the transaction and Leomedon shrugged, grinned and said, it's how I proceed with all my transactions. That's why my city is so powerful, sir. And Leomedon had summarily dismissed the builder. Well, needless to say, of course, folks, you recognize that this can be no ordinary builder. And indeed, you're right. The builder of the walls of Troy was actually an Olympian god, none other than the Olympian god Poseidon himself. Now, why Poseidon had taken on a contract to build a series of walls would involve us in a whole other myth. But the gist of the story is that, well, precisely one year earlier, Poseidon had managed to offend Zeus, king of the gods, and Zeus's punishment for Poseidon was that Poseidon was required to spend a year disguised as a human being doing human manual labor. And so Poseidon, who had always had a soft spot for Troy, had well thought, well, what I'll do is I'll build the city a fine set of walls in my free time. And, and being a deity, well, getting those walls up in a year had been no trick at all. Now, of course, you might be wondering then why when Laomedon had offended and ripped off the builder, Poseidon, why Poseidon at the end of the year hadn't revealed himself in his full deific majesty and struck Laomedon down right in the spot. But the beauty, I suppose, of being an Olympian god and being, well, immortal is that time really isn't your enemy. Uh, us human beings, when we're offended by somebody, want to seek our revenge as quickly as possible. But, uh, but the gods of all people or of all deities know that revenge is a dish served cold. And well, if you're immortal, then you can serve that dish very, very cold indeed, because it doesn't matter if you wait to extract your revenge for one day, one week, one month, one year, one decade, or one century. Uh, they're all about the same in the eternal timelines of an Olympian god. So Poseidon waited patiently, knowing that, well, the day would come when he would have an opportunity to wreck his revenge on the city of Troy. Troy might forget the insult, but Poseidon certainly never would. A debt was owed, and someday, of course, that debt would be paid. Well, time passed uneventfully until a few years later when Laomedon himself died. He was actually murdered. Laomedon had made the same mistake he had made with a god Poseidon, but made this mistake instead with, well, a hero. Uh, Laomedon had attempted to rip off a, a Greek man who had done a great service to his kingdom, a man named Heracles. You and I likely know him by his, his contemporary name, Hercules, the same guy. And, and Laomedon had so badly ripped off Heracles that Heracles, not having the luxury of eternity to seek his revenge, had sought his revenge on Laomedon immediately by killing Laomedon, killing Laomedon's wife, and killing Laomedon's entire family tree. Uh, at the last minute, Hercules had decided to generously spare Laomedon's youngest son, a, a prince, a boy in his early teens, a boy named Priam. 
Well, Priam, the prince, had, on his dad's violent death, assumed the kingship of Troy, and Priam, having watched his father for all these years, had resolved that he would be a different sort of king entirely. And Priam worked his best to become the antithesis of everything that Laomedon had been. Priam wasn't interested in profits, Priam wasn't interested in theft, wasn't interested in graft, and within a few years, Priam had developed a well-learned and fair and accurate reputation across the entire Asian and Mediterranean world as being an open-hearted, fair-minded, and really nice guy of a king. Now, Priam did do some things very carefully. He had one minor construction project during his tenure as king. The walls were already done. The palace was already done. But Priam, a gods-fearing man, had decided that the best thing to do was appease as many of the Olympian gods as possible. And so Priam had actually built temples to all 12 Olympian deities inside the walls of Troy. And, and every day at those glorious temples, Priam ensured that magnificent sacrifices of bulls and sheep and cattle were made to the Olympian gods, and the smell of barbecue was wafting up to Mount Olympus from Troy all of the time. And it's a kind of a weird little side note here, ladies and gentlemen, that the, the Olympian gods, well, they lived exclusively on, well, god food, nectar and ambrosia. Uh, they actually could not eat meat or, or animal flesh for that matter, but there was nothing that they adored more than the smell of barbecue. Well, Priam's reign preceded exceedingly well. He was loved by his own people. He, he was appreciated and protected by the Olympian gods, and, and Troy managed to thrive and prosper. And then a day came, a few years into Priam's reign, when Priam was visited by fate and deadly destiny, and, well, everything inside of Troy began to change. One night, when Priam was sound asleep in his bed with his wife Hecuba, something happened. Now, I have to stop and clarify. Uh, I told you that Priam was sound in sleep in his bed with his wife Hecuba, and, and you need to know because it's critical to our story that, well, Priam was a monarch in the proud, established Eastern tradition of monarchy, which meant that Priam had a first wife, Hecuba, but he also had other or lesser wives, plus a whole host of concubines inside of that city. And and Priam's days as king were busy, but his nights were busier still because Priam as king was expected to, well, spread his time and his seed, I suppose, if you will, among the various wives and concubines of Troy. In fact, well, Homer, the greatest of the chroniclers of these stories, tells us that eventually King Priam managed to father 50 sons and 12 daughters on, on well, a host of different wives and concubines. Ladies and gentlemen, just to help you understand this, the, the Trojans sincerely believed that in matters of succession to the royal throne, well, the best possible sort of safeguard against mishap uh, because the heir apparent died or uh, the heir apparent turned out to be a raving lunatic or something like that was to have a vast stable of available potential successors to the throne. And so Priam made very, very sure that there was a whole host of sons and half-sons through uh, wives, secondary wives and concubines who could help him to control Troy if something went terribly wrong and the primary line of succession to the throne went off the course. And so Priam had a whole host of sons, a whole host of daughters, a whole host of wives, a whole host of concubines, but this night he was sleeping with Hecuba, and Hecuba was 
Priam's wife number one, if you will. His, his primary choice as a life partner, Hecuba's children would be the direct heirs and descendants to the throne. Just two years ago, Hecuba had given birth to a little tiny boy named Hector. He was the heir apparent to Troy someday when Priam died. And, and Priam actually deeply, deeply loved Hecuba. The other women were a necessary part or a task or a role of kingship, but Hecuba was Priam's life partner. They loved each other. Well, one night when Priam and Hecuba were sound asleep, suddenly at about two o'clock in the morning, Priam had been wakened by Hecuba. And what had woken Priam was Hecuba's blood-curdling screams of pain, terror, and horror. Well, immediately Priam had rolled over. He had reached for his sword. He always slept beside a sword. And, and a moment later, the doors to the royal bedroom burst open and in came a, a bronze-armed contingent of Trojan bodyguards in case some intruder had got into the royal palace. And for a few moments, there was chaos, but soon it became apparent that what had caused Hecuba, the queen, to scream hadn't been any form of intruder. It had actually just been a particularly horrific nightmare. So Prime had set aside his sword. The bronze-armed Trojan bodyguards had bowed and, and left the bedchamber. And, and then Prime had turned to comfort his wife. And clearly Hecuba had had a nightmare well to end all nightmares. She, 15 minutes later, was still shaking in terror, pale as a ghost, looking absolutely, absolutely distraught. It took Priam half an hour of gently holding on to his wife and whispering reassuring words to her to, to convince Hecuba that she was actually safe and nothing was wrong. You had a nightmare, dear, he explained. And, and once, of course, Hecuba had calmed down and began to breathe normally, Priam had turned around and, well, asked that question, which I suppose any of us would ask our partner had they woken up with that horrific nightmare. And the question was, do you remember anything from your nightmare? And curiously, at that point, Hecuba had turned around, uh, grabbed a pillow, clutched it tightly to her breast, turned away from her husband, the king, and said in a very firm, non-negotiable voice, no, I do not remember the nightmare. And now I'm going back to sleep. And Hecuba had rolled over, turned away from her husband, and feigned sleep. Well, Priam thought very little of it that night. He rolled over and eventually fell back to sleep himself. But when the same nightmare returned on the next night, and again on the night after that, and again on the night after that, and again on the night after that, until that nightmare had returned six successive nights in a row, well, then Priam, king of Troy, grew exceedingly alarmed. Because each night, once he managed to calm his wife Hecuba and then turned to her and said, Hecuba, can you tell me what you saw in your nightmare? Hecuba would grasp that pillow, turn away from her husband, and was clearly lying when she said, no, I do not remember a thing about the nightmare and now I'm going to sleep. Now, folks, this would have been, a, I suppose, an ugly and an uncomfortable state of affairs inside of any marriage. Uh, Hecuba wasn't getting any sleep. Priam wasn't getting any sleep. And there was this well, undiscussed elephant of the recurring nightmare in the room. But we need to understand that inside of Trojan, ancient Trojan or ancient Greek culture, the situation for Priam and Hecuba with this recurring nightmare was much, much more dire than we can possibly imagine. And if you think about it, if, if you or I were to be visited by the same recurring nightmare night after night after night after night, well, we in the 21st century would likely go looking for various explanations for the nightmare and we'd likely grab onto a possibly maybe a Freudian explanation and 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 look at the nightmare and wonder what 
suppressed or sublimated desires or fantasies we were experiencing and not willing to think about in daylight waking hours we were now allowing to revisit us inside of our nightmare world and or we might if we were not feeling Freudian we might go in a Jungian direction and instead sit down and sort of scour through our nightmare looking for symbols or archetypes and then try to decode the nightmare in that fashion but for the ancient Bronze Age Trojans and Greeks, well, nightmares and the meaning of nightmares was very, very clear indeed. What dreams and nightmares were, ladies and gentlemen, were the Olympian gods providing messages, warnings, portents, and prophecies to human beings. In other words, if the Olympian gods wanted to tell you something that was of dire importance and urgency, they would send it to you in the form of a nightmare. And so... On the seventh night, when Hecuba still refused to disclose the contents of this nightmare, Priam, the king of Troy, had every reason to worry. Clearly, the Olympian gods were, well, text messaging in technicolor, if you will, some dire warning about Priam, about his wife, or about the people of Troy. And, and the warning was so frightening that Hecuba was lying to her husband about what she remembered of the nightmare. So finally, Priam, the king of Troy, recognized that, well, he had no choice. He needed to know what it was the gods were trying to tell him. So in the seventh night, when Hecuba again rolled away from her husband and clutched onto that pillow, Priam had got out of their bed, donned the royal robes and the crown of the king of Troy, and made his way to the throne room. When Priam got to the throne room, he turned to the guards and, and he ordered them to wake up, well, most of the inhabitants of the royal Trojan palace. He said, summon the entire royal family, bring in all the heirs, bring in all my cousins, bring in all my children, bring in everybody who might possibly someday inherit the throne of this kingdom. Bring them here. Then Priam had turned around to the guards and said, bring in my ministers of state, bring in my advisors, bring in my counselors. And in other words, bring in my political representatives, the people that helped me make the geopolitical decisions and the economic decisions that allow Troy to run. And then finally, Priam had turned around to the guards and he said, and summon the priests. No, ladies and gentlemen, the Bronze Age world of Troy had a very strange and interesting sort of amalgam of, well, decision-making power. Uh, we talk about sort of branches of government and, and separations of government and things like that. But inside of the Bronze Age, well, essentially there were three different groups that had a vested interest in governing or ruling a state. And that was, of course, the, the royal family and the heirs to power, who were hereditary heirs, of course, and they needed to be consulted. And then there were the cabinet ministers or the officials or, or the folks who whose job it was to make the real politics sort of temporal decisions on the best policies for the nation. But the final branch of government, which always had to be consulted, of course, were the priests. Because the priests were, well, they were the conduit between gods and men. And the Olympian gods, though they didn't frequently interfere in human affairs, when the Olympian gods did choose to interfere in human affairs or send human beings messages, well, only a fool of a king would discard or not pay attention to those messages. So the priests were an absolutely imperative branch of government, if you will, and they had to be listened to carefully. Well, it took a matter of some time. It was the middle of the night, but eventually all of the heirs to the royal family were assembled. The cabinet ministers were assembled. The priests were assembled. And at that point, Prime had turned around to the guards and he said, and now bring my wife Hecuba. Summon her to the throne room too. And if she will not come willingly, well, force her here. I need her to speak. Well, everybody waited patiently. And five minutes later, well, ladies and gentlemen, Hecuba on her own, on her own volition, unforced by the guards, stepped into the royal throne room and she approached the throne of her husband, King Priam of Troy. Priam stood up on his throne. He turned to his wife, the woman he loved, and he issued a very dire command. 
Hecuba, citizen of Troy, Priam spoke. Disclose to me the contents of your nightmare, on pain of death if you do not. I am the king of Troy. I need to know. And then Priam desperately, fearfully hoped that his wife would disclose the contents of the nightmare and he would not have to follow through in public on the pain of death bit. Well, at that point, ladies and gentlemen, Hecuba broke her silence and in front of the assembled Trojan throne room, she disclosed the contents of the nightmare which had visited her for each of the last seven nights. Standing there in front of everybody, she spoke. In my nightmare, Hecuba explained, I dream that I am pregnant, due to give birth any day. Now, at this point, folks, there was a ripple of exasperated sighing across the throne room of Troy because, well, everybody knew that, well, pregnancy was not an awful lot of fun. It was terribly painful. And, well, labor and birth were perilous inside of the Bronze Age. Their understanding of obstetrics was fairly limited. And, and, and so there was a legitimate reason for any woman about to give birth to be worried. But, but to turn this into a, a seven-night nightmare theatrical production, well, most of the people in the throne room thought that Hecuba was a little overdoing it. And after all, just two years ago, she had successfully given birth to a happy, healthy little boy named Hector. So this wasn't her first pregnancy. But Hecuba had raised her hand and called for silence, and she said, Wait, but in my nightmare, when I go into labor, I know I am carrying a boy child in my womb, but as I begin to push that child out of my body, the boy somehow changes from a small, healthy little boy into a fiery, flaming, burning torch. And no matter how hard I push and labor, that torch will not leave my body. It is burning me from the inside out, and the pain is unbearable. Well, Hecuba finished speaking. There were gasps of horror across the throne room. This was a particularly nasty nightmare. And Priam, doing his best to maintain his regal dignity, recovered himself, turned to the priests. This was obviously their department to discern and said, priests, can you tell me what does the nightmare mean? What are the Olympian gods telling Troy? Well, the priests had assembled in the back room of the Great Hall for 15 minutes. Well, the other branches of government sat and with bated breath waiting for the priests' discernment of the nightmare. And 15 minutes later, the head priest returned to the throne room. He, he approached King Priam and he said, My Lord Priam, this is a, a, a very difficult and dire nightmare. It will take us some time to interpret. Priam, we need a few days. We need to consult the auspices just to be sure. We will let you know as soon as we have found out. Well, it's not the answer Priam wanted. He wanted to proceed with the answer right away, but the priests had their own way and their own schedule for doing things. So Priam nodded assent and said, consult the auspices then and let me know what you find out. And, and a little bit here about what consulting the auspices was, ladies and gentlemen. Inside of Troy and inside of Greek culture, of course, there was this 
art now lost in, as far as I know, everywhere in the planet today of, well, discerning or divining what the will of God was through consulting the flight of birds. And the Trojans took this very, very seriously indeed. Young men from birth were slowly trained in this art, and the Trojans were confident enough in it that they routinely resorted to it with, well, at least as good a result as, well, any other methods of discerning the will or the needs or the desires or the beliefs of God seem to have worked in any other culture right up to the 21st century. So the Trojan belief in consulting the auspices meant following the flight of birds. And if a bird flew left or, or, or right or north or south, and the flight that the bird took in their path across the sky in the time of day in which the bird flew, and the, the song of the bird when the bird was flying, and, and particularly the species of the bird really, really mattered. If you got an eagle, you knew that Zeus himself was engaged in the prophecy, that sort of thing. So, so the priests headed off to consult the auspices to help them interpret this nightmare of Hecubas, this nightmare of the, the burning torch. Well, a day and a half later, the head priest was back. He, he found Priam alone in the king's private study, and the head priest approached Priam with a rather sensitive diplomatic suggestion. The head priest, who was a savvy politician, uh, turned to Priam and said, my lord, my king, we priests have discerned the message from the gods. We are fully in agreement on the meaning of the nightmare, but we were thinking, my lord, that it might be prudent for you to, well, actually hear what the gods are telling Troy in private, in, in your own study here, as opposed to, well, in the full throne room with all branches of government assembled. So so if you'd like, I could tell you right now, my king, it might, it, it might be for the best. And, well, Priam, if he had been a more politically astute or a more conniving man or a man who was more capable of of engaging in this sort of sort of backroom politics himself, might have recognized that the priest was saying uh, in very unspoken language, listen, you don't want word of this nightmare getting out. Uh, but Priam was gentle, trusting, and guileless to a fault, I suppose. So, so Priam had missed the head priest's uh, caution and diplomatic warning, and Priam had turned around and said, well, if the night Mayor concerns Troy, then everybody in Troy should hear it. So we will gather in the throne room sometime later today, and you can tell everybody what the gods are telling Troy. Well, everybody assembled an hour later inside of Priam's throne room. The royal family were back again, the ministers of state and all of the priests. And the head priest stepped forward, and the head priest spoke. The Olympian gods are sending a very clear message to Troy. And the message, my lord, is this. Your wife, the queen, Hecuba, is carrying in her womb a boy child. That child will be born any day now soon. But my king, the Olympian gods are warning you. Should that child be born, and should that child be allowed to live, that child will someday be the torch which burns your city of Troy to the ground. My king, Hecuba is carrying in her womb the seeds of the destruction of Trojan civilization. When that baby is born, that baby must be destroyed. Or someday, my lord, your city will burn. 
Well, the priest bowed. He stepped away in silence. There was a collective gasp and then a ripple of murmured conversation throughout the throne room. And and then Hecuba, standing beside Priam, had, had leapt to her feet and began to scream out, her protests, and in a rage, she had rounded on to the Trojan head priest. She'd said, you foolish old holy man, and, and your silly discernment of superstitions through the flight of birds. Priests have been wrong before. Priests will be wrong again. Who can really decode the nightmare and the will of the gods anyway? What are you saying, that a little baby boy will destroy a city? How could a little baby boy destroy a city? I will protect him. I will raise him well. I will keep him away from matches. And, and poor Hecuba had tried everything within her power to discount the dire prophecy and the dire discernment of the dream brought on by the head priests. But regardless what Hecuba said, the priests were adamant they did not change their interpretation of that dream one iota. And then Hecuba, in a panic, had turned around to Priam, her husband. She had pleadingly looked into Priam's eyes and said, You do not believe this nonsense, do you, husband? But when Hecuba had seen her husband's eyes, they had gone cold and steely blank. So Hecuba in a panic, had fled from that throne room. Well, the entire throne room uh, dispersed in, in a state of panic, confusion, and discord. And Priam, the king of Troy, spent a sleepless night on his own, debating what to do. Debating what sense to make of the priest's discernment of this nightmare, whether to believe it or not, and, and if he did believe it, what sort of action he should take. Well, poor Priam, he spent very little time on the believe-it-or-not part of the equation. As I told you, Priam was a good man, a, a gentle man, a friendly man, a trusting man, and a guileless man. So when the, when the priests told him what the nightmare meant, Priam assumed that, well, the priests were telling the truth. And Priam, well, never thought badly of people or assumed that they might have other motivations whatsoever. So Priam spent very little time worrying about whether the priests had accurately discerned the meaning of the nightmare. And instead, Priam got on with the practical matter of what to do. It was clear in Priam's mind that if Hecuba gave birth to a boy, well, that boy would be the torch which would burn the city to the ground. And the only other option, of course, then, as the priests counseled, was to destroy that boy, to kill his kid the very moment that the child was born. And and it wasn't an easy decision for Priam. Um, Clearly, he wanted to protect his city of Troy. He, he felt like he was a father of those people, all 150,000 of them. And, and so he wanted to protect the city. And that, of course, would have meant killing the child. But Trojan culture and Trojan society and Trojan civilization and Trojan religion, well, they had dire prescriptions against, well, the killing of any infant children. Uh, it was wrong. It was considered a grave and, and, and mortal offense against the gods to kill a child. And, and in this way, Troy differed from many of the other parts of the Mediterranean world where, well, infanticide was routinely practiced. But inside of Troy, this was a dire, dire thing to consider doing. And Priam recognized that he was in a bit of a bind. If, if he left the child to live, well, Troy would burn. But on the other hand, if if he, the king of Troy, killed his own child, a son, and heir to the throne, well, the gods might extract some form of a, a vengeance on Troy for that particular sin. And Priam found himself in a terrible, terrible no-win situation. So he sat up all night agonizing, and by morning had reached one decision, which was that he didn't really like very much being king. But some hours after that, Priam had finally decided on what his course of action of necessity had to be. Well, Priam maintained his cold, steely, non-committal countenance for the next few days and waited. 
And four days later, after three more nights of horrific nightmares, his dear wife, his Hecuba, went into labor. And ladies and gentlemen, it was a very normal, a very uneventful, very healthy labor. And, and born to Hecuba was a happy, bouncing, perfectly intact little baby boy. And the baby that that baby was born, well, Hecuba had turned around. She had held up the little baby boy to the priests. She'd held up the baby to her husband. And she'd turned around and she'd said, does this look like a torch, you foolish priests? And then she turned to Priam in desperation. And she said, does this look like a child that could hurt anything, husband? And, and Priam had once again kept his own counsel. Well, shortly after that, Hecuba had fed the child and then Hecuba had fallen asleep, tired from the labor. And the moment she did so, of course, Priam did what he believed he had to do. Priam bundled up his day-old boy. He left the child's nursery. He carried the day-old boy down into the courtyard of the palace. He summoned the loyal huntsman. He turned to the loyal huntsman and he gave the loyal huntsman a, a dire order. He said, carry this child, carry my son by dead of night, bring him outside of the walls of my city, bring him high, high up into the mountain behind my city. And when you get near the top of Mount Ida, when you find a remote place where only shepherds go, kill my child. Then cut out his heart and bring that heart back to me as proof that the deed has been done. My son must die, or someday my city will burn. Well, tears in his eyes, Priam kissed his doomed son goodbye and rushed back into the palace, knowing that, well, there was going to be an awful lot of explaining to do to his wife, Hecuba. And the huntsman, well, the huntsman carried out his task. The huntsman bundled up the infant child, rode his horse deep in the dead of the night, high up into the most remote sections of Mount Ida, found a crossroads, a remote crossroads, where only shepherds go, and the huntsman dismounted, lay the child on a rock, reached for his belt, pulled out a short serrated blade knife, raised the knife to the heavens, said his prayers of repentance to the gods for the heinous crime he was about to commit. And then, of course, the huntsman had a change of heart. And ladies and gentlemen, we, well, we should have been expecting this. We know the structure of stories. We know how stories work. And, and we didn't go to all the trouble of presenting the prophecy of this particular baby being a torch who would someday destroy the city of Troy to then, well, 10 minutes of storytelling later, turn around in the very same episode of the very same podcast series and, and, and allow the huntsman to kill the kid right away. Uh, without giving you any plot spoilers, we know that this child has to live because this child has a huge place to play in the roles of fate and deadly destiny inside of the Trojan War epic story. So the huntsman, as the knife came up, had looked at the baby. Maybe the baby had smiled. Maybe the baby had cried. Who knows what the baby had done? But the huntsman had thought better of murdering a child and, and, and so sheathed his knife and left the child there at a remote wilderness pass at a crossroads where only shepherds go, hopped onto his horse and, and only then recognized that he had to return to King Prime with evidence that the deed had been done. So, so the huntsman had looked around and found a convenient fuzzy forest animal who was nearby, a rabbit, and the huntsman had summarily dispatched the rabbit, cut out its heart, and headed back to Troy with the rabbit's heart, hoping that that might fool the old king. Well, Priam was distraught and beside himself, and when the huntsman finally did come back, Priam didn't even want to see the animal heart. He, he was feeling horrible for what he had done, and, and so Priam had dismissed the huntsman and said, never speak of this to anybody again. And, and well, Troy then 
well slept peacefully, believing that the torch, the torch prophecy to burn the city of Troy to the ground, that torch had been extinguished at birth. And as for the little baby boy, well, well, we know how the stories work, ladies and gentlemen. Not, not ten minutes after the huntsman departed, well, along came the inevitable shepherd, speaking out loud in, well, the inevitable Shakespearean soliloquy, saying things to the remote wilderness with nobody around, but saying them out loud so we could know exactly what he was thinking. Things like, alas, I'm a tired, lonely old shepherd. I have no wife or children of my own. Who will look after the 15 sheep when I die? Oh, if only I had a son. And of course, ladies and gentlemen, at precisely that moment, the shepherd had bent down and discovered, well, what are the odds? A, a tiny, bouncy little infant, newborn baby boy sitting all there alone at a remote wilderness pass in a place where only shepherds go. And so the shepherd had bundled up the little boy with great delight, brought him back to his shepherding hut, and decided to raise the child as his own son, neglecting to ever tell him about his adoptive parentage. And, and the child grew up healthy and strong. On his first birthday, the shepherd, recognizing that the boy was going to live, had decided it was time to name him. So he had turned to the little boy and said, what will I call you? Let me see. And decided that, well, the name Paris sounded like a wonderful name for a shepherd boy. And so, folks, a prince of Troy, named Paris, destined to be the torch which burned the city of Troy to the ground, grew up completely ignorant and oblivious of his true identity, high on the slopes of Mount Ida, a mount behind the city of Troy, believing, well, from the time he was born, that he was destined to do nothing more but learn how to look after a flock of 15 sheep. Now, there are myriad, countless stories and myths about uh, this Paris, this shepherd boy from, well, essentially from the time he, he is abandoned at that crossroads up until the time, oh, 17 to 18 years from now, ladies and gentlemen, in, in, in some future upcoming podcast episode when uh, Paris, now a young man, will burst fully onto the scene and, and well dominate much of our story action adventure for episodes to come. Well, there are myriad stories about the early life of Paris, and, and, and some of them are particularly crazy and remarkable. One story has uh, Paris being actually nursed and suckled by a she-bear for a few weeks before the shepherd comes along, and other stories have Paris engaged in all forms of hijinxes and exploits up there on Mount Ida. But, but the truth of the matter is that most of these stories appear to have been written after the fact, well after Paris, well, bursts back onto the world stage in his adulthood, and most of these stories stories appear to have been written by, well, Trojan storytellers who are doing the very best to, well, gloss over the ugly incident involving the king deciding to murder his own child all those years ago. So we really can't trust the authority of an awful lot of those stories. As we really don't know very much of what actually happened to Paris during those missing years. But but all the storytellers and all the myths agree in a few things. And here's what we do know. Number one, Paris, everybody agrees, was a devastatingly good-looking young man. And in, in fact, later he is going to be judged or accorded to be the first or the second best-looking man in the entire Mediterranean basin. And all accounts agree on that. And, and the second thing which most accounts agree on about Paris is that, that Paris was charming in a, in, a, in a friendly, superficial sort of way. But Paris got along really very, very well with everybody. He, he had the gift of the, of the gab, the gift of charm, that sort of thing. And, and, and the third thing that all accounts and all historians and all storytellers agree on is that, well, Paris had a thing for the ladies, a, a rather, well, frankly, insatiable thing for the ladies. Uh, from about the time he was 14 years old, Paris was soon on a first name, well, more than first name basis with virtually every shepherdess within a few hours walk of his home, his shepherding hut up there on Mount Ida. Paris liked the ladies 
a lot. And, and then the final thing in which all chroniclers and storytellers agree is that sometime in his very late teens, Paris actually met a particularly special lady, a, a, a lady that he actually fell deeply and passionately in love with. Her, her, her name was Anoni, and I, I use the term lady in the broadest sense here. Anoni was actually a goddess, an immortal goddess. She was a minor goddess. She was a nymph, a, a forest nymph. And if you remember from our previous episode, I introduced you to Thetis, a sea nymph who liked to bask and hang out in the Mediterranean most of the time. Well, Anoni was a forest nymph. She liked to spend most of her time frolicking in the mountains and the forests of Mount Ida. And Anoni had met Paris, and the two of them had been attracted to each other. And, and then the two of them had actually fallen head over heels in love with each other. So they had set up shop inside of Paris's little shepherding hut and, and settled down for what they thought would be a, a happy life of shepherding. They, they had no greater aspirations and increasing the size of the flock, um, sort of fitting in and developing some social contacts inside of the burgeoning shepherding network that, that was forming up there on the slopes of Mount Ida and, and, and living a happy, peaceful, content life, maybe having some kids to someday inherit the flock. And neither Paris nor Anoni had even the remotest inkling or clue that, well, fate and deadly destiny had other things in store for those two individuals. And folks, I'd absolutely love to be able to tell you precisely what fate and deadly destiny had in store for those two individuals, but that is going to have to wait for a few podcasts down the road because we have a few other threads to weave into our tapestry before we get to that particular episode. And so at this particular point, it's time for me to essentially say goodbye to some of you and give you a couple of the standard options, which you will get at the end of every one of these particular podcast episodes. Uh, if you're just in the series for the story itself, just the sheer unadulterated pleasure of, of leaping into the what happens next questions, and I would encourage you to say your goodbyes to me in a moment and head right away over to my website, trojanwarpodcast.com, where any day now soon you will find episode number three up and running and posted for your for your listening convenience. And when you're over there on the website, if you choose, well, you can take 10 seconds and subscribe. And that way, all future podcast episodes will conveniently arrive on whatever device you use to listen to these things. Or you can set things up so that a little reminder or email will arrive letting you know that the podcast episode is available. When you're on the website, of course, you, you might have a little bit of fun. I've posted an awful lot of really interesting, famous works of art, which depict scenes from the story that I'm telling. And they're really, really cool to look at them. Some of them are uh, classical works of art. Some of them are contemporary works of art, but they're all an awful lot of fun. And I've also included detailed show notes on my post-story commentary. So if you're interested in reading up on what I'm talking about, you'll find all the notes there. So for some of you, it's going to be goodbye. And for the rest of you, I'm going to leap into the post-story commentary. And during this commentary, I'm going to spend all of my 10 minutes or so talking about Greek concepts of fate and deadly destiny and and how they differ from our 21st century concepts of free will and agency and those sort of things. Because understanding fate and deadly destiny is really, really, really critical. It's going to play an absolutely massive role inside of this story, uh, particularly in our next episode where we are going to meet a young man, uh, a gentleman named Achilles, who, well, fate and deadly destiny govern, govern every individual element of his entire life story. So for some of you, it's uh, goodbye. Have a great day. Hope you enjoyed this and get over to episode number three. And for the rest of you, well, in about five or six seconds, we'll pick up with the post-story commentary. So welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the post-story commentary. 
Now, I told you that what we were going to explore in this particular post-story commentary were ancient Bronze Age attitudes towards questions of fate versus questions of free will. The, the big burning question of really how the universe is set up. Are, are, are we living in a universe where, well, we are all actors inside of a play which has already been written and is sitting on some cosmic shelf someplace. And all we essentially do as individuals is, well, fret and strut our brief hour across the stage. And and our real actions, our decisions, and, and all the major things that we're going to do in our lives have already been decided and, and if you will, written in some sort of cosmic play or, or book someplace. And, and that's one sort of way of looking at how the universe is structured. Or on the other hand, are we actors in a play where we are writing our own futures, our own fates, and our own destinies. And well, while the past chapters or the past scenes or acts are already written, the future is a blank sheet and we're essentially well penning as we get up every day our own choose your own adventure lives. And and that's sort of the other attitude which human beings have had down through the ages on questions of free will. So those are the big questions. And I remember as a university student, my primary degree was in English literature, but I spent an awful lot of time dabbling inside of philosophy courses. And there was absolutely nothing that, well, I personally adored more than hanging out with like-minded philosophical buddies of mine and was spending an evening geeking out over these big questions. Are, 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 we, are we free? Do we have agency over our lives? Or is everything predestined or pre-written? Or, or, or is the world sort of set up in such a fashion that anything I'm going to do is inevitable because there's causality and all of those kind of things? And you can have an absolute blast doing this kind of thing if your mind is sort of set up to find this kind of thing fun and, and you find a group of friends that like doing it. And, and I could go on and do this stuff for hours of post-story commentary, but the real reason why we're talking about it now is to try to get a handle on what these Bronze Age Trojans and what the Bronze Age Greeks, which we're going to meet in the next episode, felt about fate and deadly destiny and that sort of thing, because it really informs an awful lot of the things that happen inside of, well, Trojan War, the podcast, the story that I'm going to be telling you. So... What we'll do is we'll spend the balance of this post-story commentary sort of focusing on, well, what somebody like King Prime of Troy would have believed about these concepts. Would, would King Prime of Troy believed that he was an actor in an inevitably already written play? Or would King Prime of Troy believed that when he woke up every morning, he had significant agency over the way that his life and the life of his family and the life of his city was going to unfold? And, and that's really a critical question for us to understanding the ancient Bronze Age Greeks and Trojans. So here's in a, in a nutshell, very quickly, how people like Priam would have answered these questions. If, if you basically gave him the little, are you an actor in a play question as, as a starting analogy, Priam and his contemporaries would have turned around and said, well, of course, uh, all of us are already fated to do or be what we are fated to do or be. It is already predetermined and there is absolutely nothing that we can do about it. So Priam was very, very clearly inside of the camp that he did not have agency if fate had determined that a certain thing would happen to him, to his family, to his city, then that was what was going to happen. And so often in front of the word fate or destiny, you'll find inside of Greek and Trojan stories, you'll find the word inexorable or unavoidable or inevitable. And, and that's just the way that they thought about things. And if you pressed Prime a little bit further and said, well, can you tell me a little bit, Prime, about what this fate or deadly or inexorable destiny thing is? Is, is, is it a person? Are, are you talking about about a god? What What is this thing which makes these decisions? And at that point, Priam would have 
well, drawn a complete blank and, and, and told you, well, it, it's a mystery. But what we do seem to understand from reading different sources and myths from this particular time period is that this fate or deadly destiny thing was a force outside of the universe itself, not governed by the laws of the universe, but that then did control everything inside of that universe. And and the only other thing that we tend to know about this fate or deadly destiny is that, well, it doesn't really seem to have a particularly human-centric or human-friendly purpose or motivation to what it is choosing to do. We, we have to be very careful in the 21st century when we talk about ideas of fate or destiny or, or it is ordained or it is the will of the gods or it is the will of the god or that sort of thing. Well, we often as human beings want to graft ourselves into fate or deadly destiny as, well, the central characters are actors inside of the cosmic stage and and that whatever play is written and sitting on a cosmic shelf someplace there features Homo sapiens as the lead, the most important, and the very special characters written in by the author of Fate or Destiny. And the truth is that the Greeks and the Trojans of the Bronze Age didn't place humanity on any particularly high sphere and and certainly didn't see that the universe was particularly structured to our particular benefit or that whatever fate or deadly destiny held in store for human beings was necessarily a, a kind or, or a beneficent or a generous fate or deadly destiny. So we have to get rid of those ideas that uh, there's some friendly fate guy up there with a beard that is looking lovingly down on our particular species. And, and now that since we're talking about deities and gods, one of the other questions that always comes up inside of the Trojan War epic story is, well, what about the gods? Jeff, you're going to ask me, Jeff, when you talk about fate or deadly destiny, are you just using those words synonymous with, say, the word Zeus, king of the gods, father of gods and men? Is, is it the same idea? And here's the problem that we face with the gods inside of this story. Sometimes when you look at the Olympian gods, so Zeus and Hera and Athena and Apollo and Poseidon, all the big 12 gods, sometimes when we see these gods inside of the story, well, it appears as though well, the gods are actually actors right along with us in a pre-written play. In other words, it, it appears as though the Olympian gods are also poor players fretting and strutting. I guess they're, well, they're eternal hours across the stage, but that they're actually victims or pawns or characters inside of a pre-written drama themselves. And, and they have very, very little more agency than even you and I might do. And But then at other times, just when you're going, well, the gods are right in there in, in, in the fated thing with us, well, the Olympian gods will engage in actions which give you the impression that, hold on, they seem to actually be choosing the future. They seem to be making decisions towards the future. They seem to be authoring the play. And and there's genuine confusion inside of all the ancient myths and stories that are going to be accounting to you on exactly what the role of the gods is. So as the story unfolds, and as you listen to more and more episodes of Trojan War, the podcast, well, you'll just have to make up your own mind on that. But whatever you decide, you you won't be the only one who holds that particular view. Now, the one really cool thing that we do know about the Olympian gods is that they did have one power or gift that we human beings do not have. And, and, and that is that, well, we obviously, if we're in Act 1, Scene 2 of our particular play, we don't know what's going to happen in Act 1, Scene 3 or Act 1, Scene 4 of our particular play. But the Olympian gods could actually see forward. So the Olympian gods knew what was coming. They knew what was in the future of the play. They knew what was in the cosmic book. They knew in advance what was fated to happen. And and that, that gives them some particular insights or powers that certainly we don't have. The big burning question, as I said, which is unresolved, is if Zeus, king of the gods, 
looks into the future of what is fated and he sees something in three acts of the play ahead, is Zeus, King of the Gods, capable of going and doing an editorial rewrite in that particular scene? And, and that's a question which I have not been able to answer. So I'll leave that for you to decide for yourself. Now, this brings us on to, well, a, a couple of questions which are really imperative and, and interesting given the last episode of the story. And that is the big sort of burning question of, well, if a human being is fated or destined to do something, or if, if a city is fated or destined to have some particular fate, well, is there anything that we here down on earth can do about it? Once it is fated, once the gods have turned to a human being as, as they turned to Priam and said, Priam, you are fated to, to be the parent of a child who will someday burn your city to the ground. Well, is there anything that Prime can do about this information? Can he change fate or deadly destiny? Is there any response that he can have other than to, well, shrug his shoulders and go, oh, well, okay, sirrah, sirrah, if that's fate or deadly destiny, well, nothing I can do about it. And 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 if we were to ask somebody like Priam or his contemporaries, well, how do you respond to this kind of information? We'd likely get two responses from them. And the first thing that a Greek or a Trojan from this Bronze Age would tell us is they'd they'd say, well, look, look, Jeff, you have to be really careful with information about your fate or your destiny. And, and you have to be very careful when you, you listen to things that the gods are telling you or prophecies that you hear or things that you've learned from a particular oracle. Because, well, fate and deadly destiny is a pretty vague and sketchy business. And by the time it is translated and interpreted and conveyed to human beings... Well, there's a pretty good chance an awful lot of the time that we human beings down here on Earth are, are, are going to get the, the gist of the message or the information wrong, or at least not quite right. So so if you're told something about your, your child, if you're told something about your city, if you're told something about the way that you will die in the future, well, you have to be very careful here because you might connect the dots one way, and that's certainly not necessarily the way that fate or deadly destiny is going to end up connecting those dots. So, so, so be very, very cautious about this sort of thing. And there are myriad stories inside of the world of, of Greek and Trojan myth and legend about individuals who consult an oracle for information and, and are told one thing, your, your city, sir, is destined to, to be involved in a great battle. And if you're involved in that great battle, a great victory will be won. And, and then the, and the king in this particular story who, who is told that immediately believes that He's been destined to, well, his city win a great victory, and it turns out when he gets out onto the field of battle, the other side wins. And and then if you go back and you decode the words of fate or deadly destiny, all it really said is your city is destined to be involved in a great battle, and a great city will win. And, and well, he just misread the prophecy. So that would have been the con first concern of the Bronze Age Greeks and Trojans. Don't spend an awful lot of time worrying and decoding this stuff, because there's a good chance as human beings you will get it wrong. But let's suppose that you actually do get it right. Let's suppose that you were given very clear and detailed information on, well, fate, what fate has in store for you. Is there anything then that you can do to avoid your fate? And likely the the greatest story or illustration of the Greek and Trojan response to this question is a is a play written in the classical area of Greek history. So about seven hundred years after King Priam's own time, by a Greek playwright named Sophocles, and the play is is called Oedipus Rex or Oedipus the King. And a number of you will have stumbled across this story in various forms in your life. And and, and in that particular story, essentially reduced to two or three sentences, what happens is 
fate or deadly destiny announces that a, a man named Oedipus will be born someday. And that man, when he reaches a certain stage in his life, will kill his father and then have sex with his mother. Well, during the course of the play in this particular story, well, everybody under the sun, it seems almost everybody in Greece, does their very best to avert this fate or deadly destiny from happening. Oedipus's parents, before he's born, do their best to not have Oedipus. They go, well, you know, he, he can't kill dad and, and sleep with mom if he's not born. And, and of course, Oedipus ends up born. And, and then Oedipus's parents, well, do the priom thing and decide to invite a huntsman to, to kill their child. And, and that way, fate or deadly destiny will be averted if the kid is dead. And, well, that goes off the rails because the huntsman in all of these stories seems to be unable to follow through in the most basic of infanticide tasks. And and then, of course, Oedipus eventually grows up and, and learns himself of his fate or deadly destiny. And he's quite grossed out. He doesn't want to kill dad. He, he certainly doesn't want to have sex with mom. And so Oedipus, as a young man, does his very best to avert fate and deadly destiny and, 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 and takes heroic and reasonable steps, the kind of thing that in a contemporary 21st century court of law, we would have said, well, the guy made every reasonable effort. Uh, and in the end, of course, Oedipus ends up killing dad and having sex with mum. And at the end of the day, that's, well, ultimately, if fate or deadly destiny said something, and if a human being decoded the sayings or their future of fate or deadly destiny, if it was written in that play, if it was up there in some cosmic shelf that this was going to happen, then it was going to happen. And there was absolutely nothing that a human being down here on earth, or sometimes it would appear even a god up in Mount Olympus could do to avert or change that fate or deadly destiny. And that brings us, I guess, to the final question, which is, well, if you really believe this, if the Bronze Age Greeks and Trojans believed this about fate or deadly destiny, then, well, why bother getting up in the morning? Why, why not just go, hmm, nothing I can do anyway. It's all written. I, I might as well just sit here in my, in my room and do nothing. And, and I actually had a buddy in university when we pursued this topic of conversation inside of a philosophy course who, who became so absolutely convinced that he lived in a, a, a preordained, pre-structured universe where, of causation where there was nothing he could do which wasn't already determined that, well, he decided to do nothing at all for four or five days but sit on his bed and eat Cheetos and mope. And, and it was about the fifth day as he sat on his bed that it suddenly occurred to him that, well, maybe he had been preordained or destined to sit on his bed for five days eating Cheetos and moping and he still could not avert his fate or deadly destiny. And so at that point, he had shrugged, he had had a shower shaved and got on with the practical business of living. And, and, and what he really ended up doing is he decided that, well, if we live in a universe that is constructed in this way, there's nothing we can do about it. So we might as well get up in the morning knowing that we believe in this sort of universe, but then, well, act as though we actually have free will or agency over our lives, because there's really no other way that a human being can act. And that would certainly have been the way that a Bronze Age Trojan or Greek from, well, the time period of Trojan War, the podcast, would have behaved. These individuals embraced life as much as we do. They, they threw themselves with a passion into their projects, their loves, their hates, their wars, their, their aspirations, their goals, their hopes, their dreams. And even though they knew deep in the back of their mind that, well, they might be fated or destined to end a certain way, die at a certain point, have certain things happen to them that they couldn't control. Well, the Greeks and the Trojans of our story didn't worry about that too much. They just carried on with the very human business of doing our very best with the limited data we have and, and, and trying to live rich, interesting, valuable, meaningful lives. And and ladies and gentlemen, I suppose I, that's as good a place as any to leave this post-story commentary. 
we're obviously talking about human beings who had a largely different view than our own. But the critical thing to remember is even though they held that view about the way that the universe was ultimately structured in all other respects, the way that they acted, the way that they loved, the way that they led their lives was very, very, very similar, if not identical to our own. So good place to leave the post-story commentary. When you get over to my website, which I'd encourage you to do because episode three will be up and waiting for you any day now soon. So when you get to the website, trojanwarpodcast.com, you will find in episode number three that I'll be introducing you to a new character, a, a new thread, a new major thread inside of the tapestry of this story. And that particular character's name is Achilles. And once you get to an understanding of the Achilles story and about that young man's life and what fate and deadly destiny has in store for him, you will appreciate all of the background I provided in this particular post-story commentary. So I'll say goodbye now. Have yourselves an absolutely wonderful day. Um, hopefully you are fated to have such day. And if you're not fated to have such day, well then, well, get up and do your best to live as a human being and embrace it as best you can because... After all, what else can we folks down here on this planet really do? So we'll talk to you again soon. Bye for now.